Okay, like I just want to be clear. When Pat said, isn't she great? That wasn't a pickup line. That's his wife. All right. And yes, she is great. It's great to have all of you here with us this morning. Especially want to welcome uh, any family members who may be uh, visiting family and you've chosen to worship with us this morning. And uh, we appreciate that. And we trust that you'll be encouraged by worship and God's word as well. Last Thursday uh, was the National Turkey Federation's big day. According to their website, 88% of us consumed turkey that day, whether roasted, smoked, or my personal favorite, deep fried. Almost 50 million turkeys. More turkeys are consumed on Thanksgiving than Christmas and Easter combined. Altogether, last year, there were some 250 million turkeys raised in this country. Average weight, 16 pounds. According to several websites I visited, by the way, that's about how much I ate. Several websites I visited, traditional accoutrements on Thanksgiving Day include mashed potatoes, gravy, stuffing, sweet potatoes, cranberry sauce, and pumpkin pie. Nothing green. In fact, I found an interesting article in Time Magazine this week that suggests that the average Thanksgiving meal comes in at about 4,500 calories. You may not know how large that number is, so the article provided some comparisons. 4,500 calories, that Thanksgiving meal that you consumed, that you devoured, was equivalent to nine large boxes of McDonald's French fries or seven Big Macs, your choice. Not to be outdone, seven Whoppers from Burger King. I can't do that, but I'd like to try. (laughs) But hold on, you could also eat 11 Junior Bacon Cheeseburgers from Wendy's or two medium pepperoni pizzas from Pizza Hut. (laughs) Or you could have had 37 chicken uh, legs, chicken legs, that's what I'm trying to say, from KFC. Or, and this one seems a little odd to me, four medium cookie dough blizzards from Dairy Queen. I could do that. (laughs) 16 snack boxes of popcorn shrimp from Long John Silver. Whoa, 10 classic beef and cheddar sandwiches from Arby's. (laughs) Or 48 chicken wings with honey barbecue sauce from Buffalo Wild Wings. No wonder you took a nap. Also associated with Thanksgiving Day are parades, football, family, and food comas. It is the most busy travel holiday of the year. AAA estimates that over 43 million of us traveled over 50 miles for the holiday weekend. And of course, lest we forget, the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday and marks the beginning of the shopping season for the next holiday, Christmas. You did notice that many retail outlets opened actually on Thanksgiving Day this year, I'm sure out of deep concern for you, allowing you the opportunity to work off some of those calories. In fact, in 1939, at the end of the Great Depression, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt moved Thanksgiving up, moved earlier one week to extend the shopping season. He thought that would be good for the economy. Some, however, refused to observe what was affectionately called Franksgiving, choosing instead to observe the traditional fourth Thursday Thanksgiving. It was in 1941 that Congress finally settled the issue, returning to the day, the day to 
the day we now observe it. Why do I share all of that very exciting trivia with you? Because Thanksgiving, like most holidays or holy days in our country, has lost its religious or spiritual significance. In fact, according to Wikipedia, Thanksgiving has its historical roots in religious and cultural traditions and has long been celebrated in a secular manner as well. The word secular means without God manner as well, causing me to ask the question, to whom are you thankful? The History Channel website says further, in many American households, the Thanksgiving celebration has lost much of its original religious significance. That's sad. Instead, it now centers on cooking and sharing a bountiful meal with family and friends. Is that true for you? Of course, we've gathered at church, you know, on Sunday, and we recognize that Thanksgiving does have religious overtones in our country. It's been variously observed in our nation's history. There is some evidence, for example, that the first Thanksgiving was not in 1621 with the pilgrims at Plymouth Plantation, but rather at a Spanish settlement in 1565 in St. Augustine, Florida. Regardless, it was in 1863 that then-President Abraham Lincoln officially established the 4th Thursday in November as a national holiday, a day of thanksgiving. In the height of the Civil War, he thought such a day would be helpful to bring healing to the nation. Now, just a little bit more trivia for you. If you go back to 1621 in the Pilgrims, you would find that Governor Bradford, in addition to feast days, also declared fasting days. It's interesting to note that that one did not catch on. You say, Scott, okay, okay, enough. So many numbers, so much trivia. What are you doing? I'm doing what our society has effectively done, distracting us from what our focus should be. You see, my questions for us this morning are, what What religious significance does this holy day hold for us as followers of Jesus Christ? And for what and to whom are we to be thankful? And further, is being thankful something we only do one day a year? A couple of weeks ago, we observed the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. As that day approached, I thought, personally, I was a bit embarrassed that we had to set aside a day to remember brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted for their faith. It's kind of like having a Mother's Day or a Father's Day. I trust, I trust that you honor your mother or your father more than one day a year. And so we come to Thanksgiving Day. I trust as followers of Christ that we are thankful more than one day a year. In fact, I'm going to suggest today that the giving of thanks is the mark, is a mark of a mature Christian. Because you see, being thankful to God keeps us humbly dependent. For what and to whom are we thankful? And what do thankful Christians look like? We actually see it in our text today, in our continuing study of Colossians. This was not intentional, but the text actually fell on this day quite, <coughs> quite remarkably. Look at it with me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17 say this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Uh, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving giving thanks through him to God, the Father. Incredible. As I studied that this week, I marveled at the timing and also some recurring themes. You see, when you read a passage of Scripture, you should take note of repeated words and concepts because likely the author is trying to get a point across, and we know that this author, the Apostle Paul, does have a point. He had received word from Epaphras that some false teachers had shown up in Colossae, and they were, remember we know this, questioning the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So Paul is seeking to establish that Christ is highly exalted over creation and is fully sufficient for all of our needs. And as such, it has been said that this book has the highest Christology in the entire Bible. I won't take time to review it all, but we remember that Paul gave us that high and exalted hymn about Christ in chapter 1. For he is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. And then he went on from there, magnificent. He told us it was his great passion to proclaim him and to present him, uh, to, excuse me, to present every believer complete in Christ. In chapter 2, he reminded us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and, and knowledge. Therefore, as we've received Christ, continue to be rooted in him and, and built up in him. He turned his attention uh, to the false teachers then for a little while. But then he got to chapter 3, and he said this, Therefore, as you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. And I can't think of a more appropriate verse as we enter this time of the year. Gave us a couple of vice lists that highlighted some of the things of this earth. As followers of Christ, we put to death sexual immorality. We, we put off sins of the mouth, but we don't stop there. We put on some virtues, namely compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and then over all of those, love, which governs all of those. We then bear with one another and forgive one another. You see, those are the things that are to characterize us as followers of Christ with a heavenly mindset. continues in verses 15 to 17 today. You see, verse 15 actually begins with a conjunction with the word and. So put on these virtues. And then he gives us three additional commands. Put these on too. But before we look at the commands, I want want you to notice those recurring words and, and phrases, those recurring ideas. First, we observe that we are to be a thankful people. Verse 15, be thankful. Verse 16, singing with thankfulness. Verse 17, giving thanks through him to God. And by the way, in that we see one of the important answers to our questions. We are thankful to God. To God. Sometimes I think when we express our thanksgiving, we are really taking the opportunity to thank each other, right? 
I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my wife, for my husband. I'm thankful for you. Let me tell you why. Nothing wrong with that, but let's remember who we are thankful to, who has provided every good and perfect gift. Scripture frequently urges us to be thankful to God, and we see here that we do that through Jesus Christ. We are able to be thankful because of what Christ has done. He has opened the way for us to approach God as Father and be thankful. Brings us to that second theme that we see. Once again, we see this high Christology. Verse 16, it is the peace of Christ which rules in our hearts, which enables us to be thankful. Verse 16, it is the word of Christ that dwells in us that enables us to sing with thanksgiving. And verse 17, it is in the name of Christ that we can give thanks to God. In short, we find that Christians are thankful people because of Christ. We must remember Christ. Just about preached my entire message, but let me take a few minutes to look more closely at the passage. And then we're going to end, we're going to end very intentionally in communion where we remember Christ and give thanks. The outline actually follows those benefits of, of being in Christ, the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ, starting with the peace of Christ. Since Christ is everything, since he is supreme, since he is sufficient, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul told his readers to be anxious for nothing, but by prayer with thanksgiving to let our requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God <coughs> would, would guard our hearts and our minds. This peace of God, when we look to that, found would would set itself as a garrison about our hearts and bring internal peace in the midst of great struggle and trial. But the idea here is not internal peace per se. We, we have a tendency to individualize everything. But Paul is not talking about Jesus and me here. Talking about the individual while it is true that we have peace with God, a vertical peace with God resulting in personal peace, here he's talking about a horizontal peace with one another that results not in personal peace, but public peace. We know he's talking about peace among believers for a number of reasons. First, we remember he just told us to put on some things in the previous verses, and they were all those relational terms. Remember, humility and compassion and, and patience and gentleness and, 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 and surround all of those with love. So then he proceeds here to say, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart so that there is this horizontal relational peace with us. Listen, Christians ought to be known for the peaceful way that we love and care for each other. Here's a question, are we? Christians known as peaceful people? Especially with each other? The second way that we know that he's talking about relational peace is he uses a very interesting word for the word rule. 
It is a word that was used to speak of acting as an umpire in the Greek games. And so the umpire would judge the games to determine a winner. And the word then came to be used, generally speaking, of judging or acting as an umpire or an arbiter between people. So here Paul says, let the peace of Christ act as a judge, act as an arbiter between you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your body and, and, and umpire you to bring you together in one body. Final reason we know he's talking about relational peace is because he says, let this peace rule in your hearts, plural, collectively, because you were called in one, collectively called in one body. We were called together into one church the same way through the finished work of Christ. And so we ought to look at one another and be absolutely amazed. You, you too were called to Christ through his finished work. You too have experienced grace and there should be, there should be this overwhelming love and peace that, that results. Let, so let this vertical peace we have with God be experienced horizontally between us as brothers and sisters. This ought to mark us as Christians. And I want to say, it is no badge of honor that the church of Jesus Christ today is so divided. That it is involved in so many fruitless, trivial, and meaningless divisions. Now, I believe that we should stand for, for truth, the truth of Scripture and doctrine and, and Christ. This is, after all, why Paul uh, wrote Colossians. He was, he was battling heresy, false teaching way back in Colossae. But so many of the things that we divide about today are, are unnecessary. We should allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts as one big C universal church. And as a result... We will then be thankful people. This gratitude is because of Christ and what He has done that brings us into one body. And it is a shame that we have so fractured it. We should be known for peace. Now, this is an interesting way that Paul says it here. Many times he and others tell us that we are to give thanks, all right? Uh, uh, for example, First Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But this, this is not what he says here. This is not a verb. He doesn't say give thanks. He says, he uses an adjective, be thankful people. In other words, we are not just people who give thanks. We are not just people who occasionally give thanks like one day a year. Rather, we are described as thankful people. It is to be our character. When people think of Christians, they ought to think of thanksgiving. Second, verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And again, that word you is plural and given the context and what he goes on to say. Most agree the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly, that is abundantly as a church. Again, there is a place, all right? When you're reading this, there is a place for personal devotions and quiet times where we grow in the Word of God personally, individually. But that's not the point here. The point here is that the Word of Christ is to grow within us corporately. 
It ought to grow larger and bigger, this word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? It could be the word that Christ spoke, but more likely everyone agrees it is the word about Christ. It is the word of the gospel, of all Christ is and all that he has done for us. It is a word about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ that Paul has been reminding us in this book. Listen, people, we should have a high Christology as a church about Jesus Christ, and it ought to be ever-growing. I've shared this with you before. We used to participate as a, as a, as a church in the community in the National Day of Prayer. We haven't done that Recently, there were a couple of events that happened that just really caused me some concern. And, and one of those was, we, we read at one church, it doesn't really matter which one, um, but we were at a church and, and the pastor stood up and he talked for a long time and he never one time mentioned Jesus or Christ. How do you address a community of believers and never mention Jesus? I don't get that. In fact, there was a, there was a, a young lady here who came up to me after a service once and she said, I counted, you said Jesus 54 times today. Yes. And then there was, a, and then there was an, another time following that that we were at a church. And, and again, I won't say which one it was. And the pastor was welcoming everybody. And he said, you know, it really doesn't matter whether you have a high view of Christ, a low view of Christ, or no, or no view of Christ. And I was aghast. It took everything in me not to stand up and walk out. It matters that we have a high view of Christ. And that it is increasingly growing. That he is fully supreme and fully sufficient for everything. It is all from him. It is through him. It is to him. And it is for him. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within us as a church. Now, as it dwells in us richly, we will then do two things. First, with all wisdom, we will be teaching and admonishing one another. This is very, this is very interesting. You see, in chapter 1, Paul prayed that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now he wants us to do something with that wisdom and understanding. He wants us to speak that truth into one another's lives. It is not enough that you become biblically bright. We must be speaking it into one another's lives. And now, also, not only that, I suggested that the theme verse of Colossians is chapter 1, verse 28, where Paul says, we, that's Timothy and me, proclaim him admonishing and teaching every man. So Paul says, it's my job as an apostle, Timothy's job as a young pastor, to teach and admonish believers. So that's your job. Scott, great. Responsibility does not stop there. We have a responsibility here, same words, to teach and admonish one another. It's not just your job to show up on Sunday or to go to life group to be involved in a Bible study and get smarter. It is your job to apply it, and it is your job to teach it to others. Now, teaching, by the way, is this idea of proclaiming biblical and doctrinal, and I say that intentionally, biblical and doctrinal truth, because I know this very popular today, say, I don't like doctrine, I just like Jesus. Whatever, you can't like Jesus without liking doctrine. To admonish is to encourage obedience in the truth and to warn, it has a negative nuance, to warn against disobedience. Again, it is not enough to know biblical truth. We must apply it and encourage each other to apply it. 
So we teach each other and hold each other accountable to truth. How do we do that? Well, a number of ways, I'm sure. But here, Paul identifies that we do that through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay. Attempts have been made to differentiate between those three categories. If there are any fine nuances, it would be as follows. Psalms are those Old Testament psalms put to music. Hymns would be those early creed-like statements carrying lots of doctrine, theology, perhaps sung or quoted like Colossians 1, 15 to 20, or Philippians 2, 6 to 11, no doubt composed in rap style. And I thought about sharing some more of that with you today. We didn't have time. Some suggest, but I have it on my iPod if you want to listen. Some, <coughs> some suggest spiritual songs are original compositions shared in the gathered assembly. Whether people compose those here or Chris or David, Tomlin, Crowder does that for it. Doesn't matter. The point is, we still all do those today. Have you ever learned a new chorus and then later you're reading in the Psalms and you go, oh my goodness, I know that. That's right, because we've been singing it. And then hymns, you know, we, we sing those hymns that carry great doctrinal truth. And then we sing some spiritual songs or songs that are spiritual or, or encouraged, not inspired, but encouraged by the Spirit. Please note that they are all to communicate truth to one another. In other words, while we do sing praise hymns and songs and, and choruses to God, there is a place for us to sing truth to each other, to communicate biblical and doctrinal truth, which means the songs that we sing, no matter what category they fall in, should be thoroughly theological and biblical. Let me say that again. The songs that we sing should be thoroughly theological and biblical. I've shared this with you before, but when you go home today, you will remember some of what I say, I hope. But you will likely be humming the songs that we sang. That's what you'll remember. You will turn on the radio and you, or your iPod and you do not listen to my sermons. I know that. You listen to music. Because music is the language of the soul. So we must sing proper music. I trust part of your diet, listen to me, is good Christian music. Because you are what you sing, I believe that. It will become part of who you are. So if you're into hip-hop, R&B, country, country... You listen to that, you'll likely leave your wife for your dog. I don't know. <laughs> Make a good diet of biblical theological songs. So, we need to sing biblical truth to one another in a variety of forms. Forms or styles are not the issue content is. But notice... While we teach and admonish one another, we are singing with thanksgiving in our hearts to God. While we are listening and learning, we are singing to God. That's why you've heard every once in a while, we sing to an audience of one, but others are listening in, and they are learning. 
And we find again that Christians are filled with thanksgiving. Notice we sing in our hearts. This does not mean we hear that. We got to take it out of the 21st century mindset. This does not mean it's private or individual. The heart for both the Greeks and the Jews was the center of all that you are. It's more than just your emotions, although it includes that. What Paul is saying is we sing with all that we are, intellect, emotion, and will to God. While our songs instruct one another, they are ultimately to God with great thanksgiving and emotion. So now let me stop right there and take a couple of diversions. First, if we are singing with all that we are, (coughs) that means that we are thoughtfully and emotionally and willfully engaged. That means that we are participating. It means that we are paying attention. It means that our lips are moving. I know that some of you think you do not have the greatest voice. Neither do I. Ask my family. But it does not keep me from singing loudly, boisterously, and jubilantly to the great God of the universe. It's why I sit in the front, so you can't hear me. (laughs) The other last month, my wife and I were on vacation, and we were going to a church in Columbia, South Carolina, a little bit smaller church than this, quite a bit smaller. And so we're walking in, and she says to me, Scott, don't sing loud (laughs) you'll drown all of them out some of you get more excited about watching a football game Carolina Duke who cares I don't today (laughs) or a television show than you do singing to the God of the universe I want to encourage you to engage wholeheartedly. That word captures what what Paul is saying here, wholeheartedly with all that you are. Second diversion, let me address, I know that we have guests here this morning, this just fits, so let me address a family matter very gently, okay? Sometimes we have a lot of movement in the auditorium. During both the worship and the sermon, lots of people walking out and walking in. And I'm not talking about moms with their kids. Okay? If you are sitting in the cheap seats in the back, which we have a lot of people do during this and the third service, it can be very distracting. I know, because I sat back there once during a sabbatical and thought, never again. It was like a parade. Far from speaking true to each other, we are keeping... Listen to me. Family matter. Gentle. We are keeping people from engaging in worship, thanksgiving, and truth. So can I gently encourage you as much as possible, limit your movement during the service. End of diversion, point three. So we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts collectively. We let the word of Christ Dwell in us collectively, richly, as we communicate truth to each other. And thirdly, Paul says this worship of God is to go beyond singing some psalms and hymns and spiritual songs for an hour on Sunday mornings. 
This worship is to characterize our lives in everything that we do. Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, not just when you're singing some songs, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do in word or deed is a way of speaking of the totality of who we are. We speak and we do. Whatever that is, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. To, to do something in the name of Jesus means that we do it with his purposes, his will, and cognizant of his presence by his spirit in mind. Which means, listen to me, everything that we do is ultimately for his glory. Everything. You say, what's everything? Well, let me tell you. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 said, even in the everyday mundane things like eating and drinking, do it to the glory of God. So that meal that you had last Thursday for the glory of God. With thanksgiving through Jesus. Have you ever wondered, by the way, have you ever wondered what it means to say grace? How many of you grew up saying that? Who wants to say, you know, we're going to say grace at the table? Anybody? Is it just me? Okay. Have you ever wondered where that comes from? It's kind of weird. Well, the word grace in, in, in the Greek, depending on the context, can be translated thanksgiving as it is in verse 16. And so when we say who's going to say grace, it means who's going to give thanks for what we're about to eat. Because everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, is for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, all that we have is because of the finished work of Christ. We can approach God, we can call Him Father because of Christ's work for us. So Christians are eternally thankful people. It does not really matter what challenges we may be facing. We remember that Paul was in prison when he was writing this. We are still his. And we can still be thankful. So whatever we do, in word or deed, all that we do, we do with his, for his glory with thanksgiving. So. It is the first Sunday of the month, December 1st, Communion Sunday, and it also happens to be the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the Christmas season, another holiday or holy day. So as followers of Christ, we have some choices to make. If you felt like that Thanksgiving gets a full court press from our culture, you ain't seen nothing. In the busyness of this season, we can be distracted by what the world would have us to remember this time of the year. Trees and lights and tinsel and shopping and gifts and eggnog. Or we can remember that we lit a candle at the beginning of the service to remember that Christ has come to bring us hope. And we can end this service, since it is the first Sunday of the month, with communion and remember why he came. We can enjoy the season. I encourage you to do that, but don't be distracted by all of its trappings. And as we remember, we give thanks. As we remember, we give thanks because Christians are thankful people. It's interesting to note that in some traditions, they call communion or the Lord's Supper, they call it the Eucharist. That word Eucharist 
comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, which means to give thanks. So as we embark on yet another Christmas season, let's remember Christ. Let's remember why he came. And let's give thanks. I'm going to ask the men who are going to be distributing the elements.